This is Democracy in Lockdown, a weekly virtual conversation on the latest news about the coronavirus crisis and what it means for our democracy. This podcast is presented by Unlock Democracy. We campaign for a better democracy and a new written constitution built and owned by the people. Hello and welcome to our new Democracy in Lockdown episode. My name is Trudy. I'm the Campaigns and Operations Officer at Unlock Democracy. And with me today is Sam. I'm Hi, Sam, Sam Coates. Hi, I'm the Campaigns Officer at Unlock Democracy. So Sam, you've just ventured into the pub for the first time in three months. What do you buy? Well, we both like our beer, don't we? So that's quite difficult. I'm going to hold the question for now on what pub I'm going to and what beer it serves. And I think I would just have, I'd have two pints next to me so that I can enjoy it without having to go back to the bar for a little while and probably a couple of packets of crisps as well. That sounds pretty boring. Um, what would you do, Trudy? Would you have several drinks at once or two different types of drinks? I think I'd just take a pint of anything at this point, honestly, mm. just a pint of a pint of human interaction please <laughs> it's not digital <laughs> so last week we talked about how students and young people have been impacted by the pandemic and what the upcoming recession might mean for their future this week we'll be talking about the climate crisis and why it's so bound up with the democratic crisis we'll be joined by ej and oliver from the uk student climate network so stay with us so the news has been mainly dominated by the Black Lives Matter protests, and quite frankly, necessarily so. These are the largest protests since the lockdown began, and have taken place all across the world, including many cities and towns in the UK. Protesters showed their solidarity with those in the US, but also highlighted issues close to home, where institutional racism pervades our justice system. In just a couple of weeks, protesters have managed to put enough pressure on the Minneapolis police to bring officers to justice and lobby their councillors to dismantle their police force, which saw the city pledging a transformative new model of public safety. In Bristol, protesters gathered around the Edward Colston statue and tore it down and ended up throwing it in the river. This has prompted a huge discussion about local landmarks and their meaning, with many different viewpoints. Priti Patel responded to comments on criminal damage by saying, the important point to note is that for those people who participated in violence and thuggery, justice will follow and the police will have all the powers and tools necessary to ensure that that happens. Whilst others started compiling lists of statues of slave traders in their local areas. City Can has also announced that all statues in London will be examined with a view to removing these links to slavery and plantation owners, including landmarks, street names, the names of public buildings and plaques, and these will be reviewed by a commission. Speaking of protests, Hong Kong is carrying up for its one-year anniversary of their pro-democracy marches. The five demands of the movement over, of over one million people are the complete withdrawal of the proposed extradition bill, the government to withdraw the use of the word riot in relation to protests, the unconditional release of arrested protesters and charges against them dropped, an independent inquiry into police behaviour and implementation of genuine universal suffrage. And with that round up, let's kick off. Okay, so the climate crisis. When I was preparing for this, I was just thinking about how 
when I was about the age of the people we're going to be interviewing today, I was just first getting interested in climate change and whether I really thought we'd still be in this position that we are now. I went to the Copenhagen demonstrations in 2009 around the climate summit that was happening then. And it was really at that point that I realised how how much was up against us really in terms of the interest that didn't want government to take the action that was needed, even though there seemed to be a lot of public support for it. So the real question I think we want to talk about and something I'm really interested in hearing from our guests later on about is why it's taking so much effort just to get the minimal action on the climate crisis. In 2008, there was a huge campaign to get the climate change bill passed, and that resulted in a target of 80% by 2050. But the current science says that that needs to be by 2030 and that the actual cuts need to be steeper than that still. We need to ask why it's taken such extreme protests to get even the basics done on climate change. And what I find so interesting about the most recent movements is that they're centering democracy in their demands in a way that I certainly haven't seen for a long time. If you look at Extinction Rebellion, for example, one of their key demands is a citizens' assembly to help decide with the government how the cuts to CO2 are going to be implemented. And I think that's a really interesting insight because if we look back at what's happened over the past 15 years and more, it really shows that despite what laws are put on the books, it's really possible that real action can be unravelled by the fossil fuel interests that still have so much power. So even though we had a climate change bill passed in 2008 and we're currently on track with the targets, we're not on track to meet the latter targets. So a lot has happened in the last 18 months to really dramatise this issue as Trudy's been looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'll talk mostly about the types of organising and activism that has happened. So climate activism, it's been around a long time. There have been people against fossil fuels for probably as long as it's been uh, extracted from the earth. But this activism has rapidly gained momentum over the past few years as we approach a critical point of no return for our environment. I wanted to go over the current timeline to put what we're talking about today with EJ and Oliver into a bit of context. In 2018, Greta Thunberg started striking from school every Friday, an action that eventually gained traction online and inspired many young people to take to the streets. Around the same time, Extinction Rebellion was established and had officially launched in October of 2018, taking a lot of their tactics from the Occupy and Civil Rights Movements. XR, as they were also known, listed net zero emissions by 2025 as one of their three aims for the movement. By the 15th of March 2019, a global strike gathered more than 1 million strikers, which then ballooned to a record 7.6 million people between the 20th and the 27th of September uh, in 2019 for the global climate strike. It was the biggest climate mobilization in history, and we certainly felt it as we were there as well. The strike was followed in more than 185 countries. So going back just a little bit, the Committee for Climate Change in May 2019 published Net Zero, the UK's contribution to stopping global warming, which recommended a new emissions target for the UK, net zero greenhouse gases by 2050, stating that current policy is insufficient for the existing targets. In September 2019, the Labour Party committed to a Green New Deal at its 2019 annual conference. This included a target to decarbonise by 2030, pulling under 
book by YouGov in late October 2019 found that 56% of British adults support the goal of making the UK carbon neutral by 2030 or earlier. XR's International Rebellion took place in October 2019, bringing most of central London to a standstill for over a week. And this was coupled with many more climate strikes on Fridays uh, throughout the year, which you see constantly over the past few years, this momentum building and building. Moving into 2020, the UK government has commissioned a citizens' assembly to look into the climate policy and how to achieve net zero by 2050. But by this time, most climate movement organisations have already adopted a net zero by 2025 policy, indicating that the UK government might be behind on the current uh, scientific thinking behind climate change. These organisations continue organising and sharing resources online over lockdown. If you like this podcast, click the subscribe button and follow us on social media. So today we're joined by EJ and Oliver from the UK Student Climate Network. How are you folks doing today? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm really good. Great, thanks so much for joining us. So we just wanted to kick off by asking you both to tell us a little bit about what a green recovery would look like to you both, because um, there's been lots of talk of the economic recovery packages that is inevitably going to need to happen to kind of kickstart the economy after the pandemic disappears a bit from view. So maybe let's start off with EJ. Can you tell us what your vision is really for what should happen afterwards? So I think my vision, when it comes down to the basic bones of it, is pretty simple. It's a recovery that puts the environment first, that puts workers first, that puts people first. Because there is no point in coming out of COVID and going back to the way things already were. So if we're going to have a green recovery, we need to be looking at every single thing we can do to improve the economy, to make it fit for purpose, fit for humans. Uh, so listening to climate scientists, listening to economists and listening to young people. So my vision for a green recovery is just listening to people who know what they're talking about and instituting what they say. Um, I, I think I would have my mine would be very similar to EJ's it is very much a recovery that is focused on helping to um, protect the environment and helping to protect the workers they should be very much at the center of it because once again we can't go back to the way things were before like normal because if we do that then we're not going to make progress in trying to combat climate change because we just we can't we can't go back to the way things have been and I think I mean with the with lockdown and everything happening what we have this i guess opportunity is in carbon emission levels are lo- are really low and we need to and while they will increase obviously when everything when we stop lockdown i think we should take advantage of the fact that they are low to try and move forward in a way that is better for the environment thanks oliver that that's really interesting and i definitely agree with you both um so hi in terms of like you say you can't go back to how things have been, which is something that we we definitely agree with. Um, how are you organising during all this? How are you organising and your role, EJ, as outreach? How has that changed uh, at UKSEN and in climate activism in general over the course of the pandemic? I think that the pandemic has presented us with both an issue and an opportunity in terms of how we do our reach. 
So the issue that it presents us with is that it's a lot harder to do outreach when you can't go to events, when you can't have speakers at your events in the same way. And it makes it a lot more difficult to reach out. But it does also give you the opportunity to restructure, to do trainings. So what we've been doing in the Oxfordshire group is uh, creating workshops for our group members so that when we are able to do outreach um, in a better way, that we will be able to uh, make the most of the opportunity to do outreach by having the skills we need. Uh, But one of the biggest things we're doing at the moment are these digital strike live streams, which is where we've had a mix of speakers on. Uh, Some of them have been international. So we've had speakers on from the USA, from other parts of Europe. uh, And it's been an amazing way to hear about what it's like to do activism in other countries. But we've also had politicians on. We had uh, Leila Moran, uh, who's my MP. Uh, We've had the Lord Mayor of Oxford. So we've basically been um, taking a very uh, Generation Z style approach to outreach, which is just doing anything we can on the internet. Uh, and everything else, we just, we've got to take it when, when we can. Um, we're just going to have to cross that bridge when we come to it, I guess. For sure. Oliver, how has it been for you? Um, very similar to EJ. It's been very online focused, like, because we can't obviously do, um, like, the strikes on the streets and everything. I think what's been happening is we've done a lot of internal organising recently uh, during this lockdown because it has provided us with an opportunity to really um, really kind of organise within the network to try and um, make our outreach once lockdown is over much more effective. So we've been having the um, strike cl- conference online over lockdown over the past um, couple weeks and it's been a re- that kind of thing is kind of exemplifies what we've been doing is the wider network in that we're really focusing on trying to um, organize and narrow down our messages and figure out how we're going to move forward once lockdown's over. Thanks, Oliver. Great. So the question I've got, I suppose, is thinking about, you know, how long we've known about how big a problem climate change is and that it's taken your guys' generation to have this really clear kind of moral imperative to to older generations about why why aren't you acting do you have any thoughts on why it's taken so long for even the action that we're seeing now to take place do you think there's anything particular about our political system for example that is slowing that down even though public opinion is now quite clear on support the support needed to tackle the crisis so let's go with ej first yeah so the reason I think it's taken so long, it's a mix of things, but I think the biggest one would be that the system we have now, um, at least in terms of how we're governed with Parliament, with the House of Commons, the House of Lords, is not set up in a way that holds those in power accountable for what they do. So you have people who are able to take donations um, from uh, big businesses um, or from certain lobbying groups, uh, but because of the first past the post voting system we have, a lot of the time people will just, you know, vote them in anyway. They'll vote them in based on party. Um, and it means that across the country, you have so many people in power who are able to do bad things, but overall their party or their beliefs aren't properly held to account because of the way we vote people in, because it's a localized first past the post system uh, and isn't um, representational. 
but then you also have the fact that people are kept in the dark um, about how bad the climate crisis actually is. Uh, one of the UKSCN demands is tell the future, um, which is for the government to actually tell the public how bad the climate crisis actually is. I mean, bad isn't even a word <laughs> um, that gets the point across. It's horrific. It's terrible. Um, but people aren't informed. And part of that is due to misinformation campaigns um, from uh, the fossil fuel industry and from people who benefit from keeping the system as it is. So there's a lot of reasons why it it's only now that we're properly like that the public that people are getting to the point where they're trying to stand up and i think it's partly because the system is so hard to fight against it can feel so hard to fight against and also because people have just been kept in the dark for so long and there's more reasons than that but those are the two biggest ones i think thanks ej i found that really moving oliver what would you say about that i would say once again i think i i definitely agree with ej in that um the government is it's not very easy to hold them to account under the current system um because of the way that um they're voted in and it's also with that with donations and the lobbying it's um we are now starting to see um governments and our government do things to try and combat climate change but it's just not enough like they're kind of doing what i would say it's probably the bare like they've declared a climate emergency but they're not. That's they haven't really done much. Met much meant anything really big after that, and it's because they're doing things which are kind of big. I think they're doing things which are big statements, like we've declared a climate emergency to try and get the public on side. But they are still kind of um, looking at donations and lobbying and how that helps them personally. So I think it is that kind of thing where the government is able to get away with doing the bare minimum when it comes to tackling this crisis just so they can kind of say to the public look we're doing this we're doing something about it but they can still continue to take donations and money from lobbying groups because that then serves their own personal interests that's brilliant thanks Oliver yeah thanks for that and I think it's partly it, it owes a lot to the student movements as well uh, that we see a lot more of this conversation in the media and therefore uh, and thus that you see it in homes as well like so real hats off to you guys for that um oliver i wanted to go back to the you said about uh, over the past few months you've been refining your message and looking at that has that changed in any way or have your demands changed from the uk government or have they more or less said this stayed the same um they've more or less stayed the same we've only modified the first demand slightly because it was originally to declare a climate emergency and implement a green new deal and they have declared a climate emergency now so now it is um to implement a green new deal but um it's we've so we've looked at the demands and we they are the same at the moment um but it's more to do with um kind of just organizing within the group and um kind of like the messages we put out on social media and that sort of thing and how we can be um very effective in spreading the mess spreading our message and uh reaching out to different people and different groups in society um and how have you been honing that message there's been an awful lot of Zoom calls. <laughs> like, there is always a lettuce meet somewhere on at least probably three workspaces at once 
for like this is when can you all do a zoom call on this when can we uh try and call to sort this out because i think we have kind of looked at this and gone while we can't be out campaigning on the streets we've kind of gone this is a really good time to work on the organization internally and um try and really work as and uh, try and work together yeah that sounds really great we're recording this in the aftermath of when a lot of Black Lives Matter protests have been cropping up all over the world and in places in the UK that haven't seen protests of any size for a really long time. Just thinking about Wales, there's places that I haven't seen protests in for ages where this is happening. So what do you think that tells us about um, activism under lockdown and particularly about young people? Because what I'm seeing is that a lot of the participants, maybe a majority of the people turning up to these protests are young people. So is there any inspiration you take from that or anything that you're reflecting on that you're going to take forward in your own campaigning? I mean, I think the amount of stuff that's um, put on social media and we've seen videos from inside the protest and it's really inspiring to see all of these people getting out despite despite the current climate and like the majority of protests that you see videos of because like the ones in London and the big cities get a lot of the attention. Um, But when you when you're on social media you see them from around the world and in different areas and it's great to see people um peacefully protesting and getting their message across but you know there's still a lot of these places are still complying with social distancing like i've seen some really powerful videos of people kneeling or lying on the ground for eight minutes and 46 seconds at a social distance and it's really inspiring to see how the gener- how our generation is kind of they've looked at the obstacle of social distancing and they've gone, yeah, but this is still a really important issue and we cannot just kind of say we're not going to do anything about it. And they've adapted around the difficulty of social distancing to still get out there and still protest and still make, have their voices heard. Yeah. It's really inspiring, isn't it? EJ, what would you want to say about that? There's a lot to say about the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think that Oliver did a really good job of saying a lot of it already. And I think one of the biggest things that I have seen from these protests is the need for solidarity. So it's, um, I've seen posts going out from environmentalist groups where they will say something like, environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And it's one of those things, like we won't have climate justice, we won't have social justice, we won't have workers' justice until we have justice for the people who have been discriminated against. So the inspiration I take from this is, you know, it inspires me to see that people are able to see the intersectionality between all of these issues and are able to see that there is an injustice and that we have to stand up against that injustice, even if it's not what we would normally uh, be fighting towards. Um, and I think that the fact that so many of these protests have managed to stay socially distant, distanced, like uh, the one in Oxford um, on Wednesday uh, last week, was like pretty much completely socially distanced the entire time. They were even giving out free masks and gloves and just seeing everyone come together as a community. It just, it goes to show that as humanity, we have some truly awful people, um, (laughs) which is why we need these protests, but people can be good. Um, So I think one of the things that I take away from it as someone who is an environmentalist, um, well, an environmental activist, is that if, you need help there will be people who will answer that call so the uh so the bame community needed help and a bunch of people have gone to go and answer that call 
uh, and to try and do their best to not talk over them, but uh, fight with them uh, in any ways that they can. And that is something that just inspires me as an activist and it should inspire you as, as an activist of any kind. Well, that's just my view anyway. No, I think that's completely true. I think it's been a real unifying moment, especially from uh, certain things that I've seen in London. Uh, people uh, people come together, like lots of com- lots of community groups, especially locally to me. Like um, you would you would have certain religious divides in the community groups, but now uh, they seem to all have amalgamated together to, to to come together to fight the common the common enemy, so to speak. Um, I wanted to just go back to the demands because people listening to this podcast, they might not know exactly what the demands are. So if you could, um, if you could just say, say what the demands from UKSCN are. Um, so would you like to, to uh, do two each, um, Oliver? Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, why don't you take the first two and I'll do yeah. the second one. So our first demand is Save the Future, which is um, the government should implement a Green New Deal. Now that they've declared a climate emergency, they should go all the way and implement a Green New Deal. Um, Our second demand is Teach the Future, which is to reform the education system around the climate crisis and teach young people about the severity of it. Uh, The third demand is Tell the Future, uh, which is for the government to communicate the severity of the climate crisis and the necessity to act now to the general public. Our fourth demand is empower the future, which is that young people must be included in policymaking and no one should be excluded from participation in our democracy on the basis of age, citizenship, permanent address, incarceration or anything else. And that we should be using a representative system and everyone over the age of 16 should have the right to vote in elections conducted by proportional representation so that everyone's vote is reflected the same in our democracy. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Um, I just had one last question. Um, there seems to be like quite a generational divide uh, in the UK at the minute over many, many different issues. Um, is there kind of a message for other generations you have to join the climate justice movement? Yeah, I, would, I think I would say that climate change is an issue that's going to affect everyone in, so, in one way or another. Um, no one is really exempt from the effects of this. While there will be uh, there will be people who are definitely hit worse, um, and that links in with social justice and climate and climate justice. Everyone will be affected by this in one way or another. And so, it doesn't matter how old you are, like what generation you're part of. We're all going to we're all going to feel this. And even if you know if you're may not be around to feel the real impacts of this, you you should be fighting so that your children or your grandchildren have a future where they're not having to worry about the effects of climate change and they can live they can live lives like people like everyone else has without having to worry about these things and can just live the biggest thing i would like certain people from other generations um to admit to is that climate change is real uh, so that's the biggest thing but also one of the things i've noticed particularly about people from um, some of the other generations and even from people my own age like let's not pretend that every young person is amazing and woke um, we're, we're never going to try and claim that which is that we're not protesting because we want to protest we're not protesting because we think oh this will make us look really good or uh, this is super fun we're protesting because we're, <laughs> we're young uh, we're here 
and we are very, very afraid, we're going to have to live with the consequences of decisions and actions that are being done now uh, or that were (laughs) being done 10 years ago. So for people to say, oh, shut up and go back to school, get your your education, all of that stuff, all I can really say is just stop. Like, we want to be in school. We want to be getting our education. There are so many things we want to be doing. Like, I'd rather be going ice skating than going to a climate protest. But I honestly feel like I just don't have any other choice. And it's really patronizing when people tell me what I should be doing with my life. Because if you guys had done what you were supposed to do, then I would be able to do what I'm supposed to be doing. But when adults behave like children, Children have to behave like adults. And this isn't a direct attack against anyone. But if you feel attacked by it, then maybe you need to go and do some self-reflection. Wow, what a powerful note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really like that sentiment because, I mean, I don't think we can really ignore the fact that the people being most directly affected by this are the next generations of, uh, are the next generations, basically. and everybody should feel a little bit of guilt in creating this situation. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. That was really great. Yeah, it was awesome to hear from you both. Thanks so much for making the time. We've really, really enjoyed it. I hope you found it useful too. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> us. Yeah, thanks for having Thank us. You. It was really great to hear what EJ and Oliver had to say about the climate movement, how things have changed in during the pandemic and the ways that they are moving forward with their organising. So to close, what can we take from the discussion we've just had? Well, for me, it's so clear that the climate crisis is a crisis of democracy as well. And there's really been a historic injustice here that goes back decades. If we think about how Fossil fuel companies had the research showing what the impacts of fossil fuel emissions would be decades and decades ago. They suppressed the evidence of that from the public. They funded organisations to prevent action by governments over and over again. And we can see that both in the failure of the climate summits over over subsequent years and in the fact that governments have still not taken anything near to the required action on this. And that's because of their disproportionate political power. We know that in just the past five years, fossil fuel companies have donated tens of thousands of pounds to the Conservative Party. And we know that the Conservatives worked really hard to get fracking through an unwilling public and failed in the end even so. So what I think we need to do is we need to really restrict the influence of these kind of corporate entities in our political system. And that means both on restricting corporate donations, But I think we may have to go further still and do some kind of reckoning for the damage that these companies have wrought on our economy and on our society. What do you think, Trudy? I think, yeah, going forward, uh, going forward business as usual is completely unsustainable. In my opinion, I think we really do need something like a Green New Deal that brings uh, all the facets of a green democracy together. Uh, including the democratic processes uh, as well as the socioeconomic 
uh, policy work behind it to really see that become successful, something that protects people, uh, that protects workers, that protects jobs, and also protects the environment at the same time. A, mutually, a more mutually beneficial agreement needs to be in place. Yeah, absolutely. And if we think about how the, the fossil fuel sector is in a really vulnerable position right now, because the demand for oil has collapsed so much during lockdown, that, that there's a real possibility they're going to lash out in ways that uh, we haven't seen for a little while to really try and get an economic recovery, which reflates the industry instead of doing the kind of Green New Deal that we actually need to see and what the science says is needed. So for me, it also means that we need to be really aggressive in calling for a deepening of our democracy so that the public will is not overwhelmed by the interests of a few corporations that have been burning the planet, basically. Absolutely. Next week, we'll be having our last Democracy in Lockdown episode. So make sure you tune into that. We've got some exciting campaigns coming up. So make sure you subscribe so you can be the first one to hear about them. You can find the link to this in the description. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Trudy. You've had a great time today. Thanks, Sam. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be coming back next Thursday with more. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share.